Hello and welcome once again to First Christian Church. I'm very glad you're with us today. This weekend marks an important day and an important time in the life of our congregation. We've got a bunch of people. How many people are going to Kenya? Uh, 24. 24 people, medical personnel and support team going to Kenya. They're going to be out in the bush, right? Yep, out in the bush providing medical clinics for people. Uh, people walk Moscow. for days to come to, to yep. these clinics, right? In fact, we have people who usually walk from Tanzania to come. They walk across the border? Mm -hmm. Yep. In the bush, so they're not stopped or anything like no. that? out in the wilds of Africa. Yeah. Cool stuff. So we've got a team headed to Kenya this week. BJ's going along. BJ, is, is, it's his responsibility as a staff member to lead those teams. And um, once the work is done there in Kenya in the coming week or so, uh, the team will be returning, but, but BJ will not be returning back to First Christian Church with them immediately. Here's why. As a congregation, we we do all we can to follow what Scripture says in terms of how we govern our lives personally and how we govern our lives from a corporate point of view and the, the kind of the ethos of our congregation. Scripture says very clearly at the beginning of Genesis that God worked for a period of time, then He took some time off and did. And so He instituted, if you will, this understanding that you work and then you reflect, you meditate, you pray, and you anticipate your next project. We have a policy here at First Christian Church that after a pastor joins us in ministry, they work for seven years, then we ask them to take some time away from their regular duties and to reflect and prayerfully examine their next stage in ministry. If you will, what, what would God be saying to them about the next portion of their life among us? How would that ministry flourish? How could longevity in one church setting over many years be impacted by just some regular time away of study and prayer, meditation, reflection, learning all of that together? So when the team returns from Kenya, BJ's not coming back to the U.S. for a few weeks. His wife and girls will meet him in Africa. Uh, Mary grew up in Africa, so they're going to show the family some of the places where, and the f places of familiarity of where they, where she grew up and her understanding of Africa. Then they'll return back to the U.S. and over the weeks that follow after that, BJ's responsibilities will be handled by Amanda, Amanda Elvin. Yep. Amanda Elvin from our congregation. Uh, one of his staff members will be leading the charge on his behalf. And in the meanwhile, he'll be praying and anticipating how God wants to work in him in the days ahead. So I'd like to do two things today. I'd like to pray, first of all, ask you to join me today, that we would pray for the people who are going to Kenya. Again, 24 people, mm -hmm. doctors, nurses. Yep. All kinds of support people. Yeah. Right. And they're way out in the bush, right? Yeah. yeah it's not way, like they're sitting on the side of the highway or anything like that. No. No, we have to travel several hours to get to where the people are at that we're taking the medical care to. Because they don't have medical clinics out there. So we're going to pray for them, and then also we're going to pray for BJ and Mary and the girls and for the days ahead. So would you join me in prayer today? Father, uh, first of all, we pray for those uh, uh, who are headed to Kenya. There are a lot of miles. There's a lot of plane rides, and then there's... There are miles, Lord, out in dirt tracks to get to people who are anticipating. Some of them, Lord, even now, probably starting to walk towards those places in the bush where they know those clinics are going to be set up. We pray, God, for safety. We pray for your Holy Spirit's work to be found moving through them as they take care of people who never get to have any medical care. May your grace be with that team coming and going. And then, Lord, for BJ and Mary and the weeks and the, the few months ahead, we ask that you would gracefully give, give them an understanding of your work in their lives and how is the next season of ministry going to sh be shaped by the work of your Spirit, 
by the way in which you call, you are calling us as a congregation and the way in which he gets to lead us in that endeavor, Lord. We ask for all of your grace over all of this. We look forward to his return soon, Lord, and the way in which we will all grow as a result of what you're going to teach and show BJ in the coming months. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Go safely, mate. Thanks. Amen. All right, well, it's good to be together in worship here this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here. And I invite you to turn with me in scripture uh, to Matthew chapter 16. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's no problem. We have one uh, here in the pew rack in front of you here in the West Auditorium. And then also, hello again to those in the East. There's uh, some folks walking around with some Bibles that you can use. And uh, as we say all the time, if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, we'd ask you to take that as a gift from us to you because it's better with you the other six days of the week than it is sitting in the pew rack or on the shelf in the other room in there. So um, we'd love for you to have that if you don't have a Bible. Well, as you turn there, um, my role here, I've, I've actually been a part of life of this church as a pastor for the last 14, this is my 14th year, and my initial role when I first came on at the ripe old age of 22 was a youth pastor here. And uh, as, as well as being the youth pastor, I also had a unique opportunity to serve at a little Bible institute uh, as an adjunct professor uh, teaching courses in youth and family ministry. And what's interesting is when I talk with people about, you know, like teaching Bible college classes or something like that, what, is how often and how frequently people will say, just kind of like right off, like, you know, I've always wanted to, you know, given the margin or the opportunity, uh, would have loved to take like a ministry course or a Bible course or a theology course. And I think that kind of stems from this, this deal that, you know, when we start to get into God's word, you know, we go there looking for answers, but it seems like with every answer, there's, you know, three more questions, right? And it's, uh, it's almost like that Alice in Wonderland effect. Like you see the rabbit hole and you want to see what's at the bottom. And so I think that's that, that urge to want to like get into that more. And so um, if that's ever been an interest of yours, or maybe it's not, and maybe I'm peaking that, or maybe you could care less. Um, either way, today's your day. Because today, we are going to have, um, you could say, a mini Theology of Jesus college seminary class together. And so that sounds both scary, like, oh man, that doesn't sound a whole lot of fun, uh, or possibly interesting, I don't know, depending on where you sit. So really, what we're wanting to understand is the theology of Jesus. And a theology, that's just a fancy word for the study of God. And so today we're going to take a study of God in the person of Jesus, because that is what our passage is uh, revealing and leading us to today in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, again, if you're newer with us, we've been working our way through the book, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which is essentially a biography of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we're at the point in the story where we're starting to understand more and more why and who this Jesus is. And... Well, and this understand that he is the Messiah and what that's all about. And so we're looking at several stories that articulate further who Jesus is, not just to the uh, original disciples and those in that setting, but for us as the readers, okay? And so that's what we're going to look at. And last week, Pastor BJ did a great job leading us in that whatever that means, it's going to be on Jesus' terms not our own. And so Jesus reveals what that looks like by, in this chapter of, uh, of Matthew, just kind of zooming out. And he's going to ask the disciples, he's going to ask us, okay, do you understand who I really am? Like, do you get, do you fully understand what it means for me to be uh, the Messiah or the Son of God? And so we're going we're gonna to dive into Alice's rabbit hole and we're going we're gonna to dig into some real meat, again, kind of from a, a, maybe a, a theological uh, class type perspective of who this Jesus is, okay? And so to do that, we're going to look at God's word, Matthew chapter 16, follow with me starting in verse 13. 
It says that when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he answered his disciples, or excuse me, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Referring to himself. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then he asks a much more personal question, verse uh, 15. He says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And so this is the question, right? This is arguably the most important question of those of us gathered here today. In the hundreds in this room, the thousands around our city, the millions around the world gather each week and supposedly live their whole lives as a reflection of that worship of this Jesus. Knowing who he is, if we're going to gather to worship him, seems like a pretty important question. Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is, and we should probably have a pretty, as we sang earlier, a firm foundation, if that's what our life's going to be built on, as to who and what that means. Interestingly, uh, Gallup uh, did a study uh, posing these questions to Americans. Who is Jesus? And uh, interestingly, eight in ten Americans believe that Jesus is, quote, God, or Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it's interesting that in this story that Peter, one of the disciples who Jesus is speaking with, answers, you could say, in line with eight out of ten Americans. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, to who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And from there, Jesus affirms that response. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Another, that's his other name for Peter. For, you, uh, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so this is good news for Peter. You know, he's posed, you know, when Jesus asks you a question, you know, and Peter, he's kind of got a record, a track record of not always getting the answers right or maybe speaking too soon or asking the wrong question. And so finally, you know, Jesus asks the question and ding, 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 he gets it right. The Messiah, that is the correct answer. And so what, what is a Messiah? Well, a Messiah or the synonymous Greek word uh, literally means anointed one in the general sense. It means anointed one. And so it'd be used in terms of such as a king or an Old Testament priest who was anointed and commissioned for a high and sacred role, uh, some sort of responsibility of authority, and that would be coupled with you know, respect and reverence for that person's role. And so throughout the Old Testament, God's people would understand that term, but what they were looking for was something more than just a Messiah, just an anointed king or a you know, Old Testament priest, that through promise and prophecy, they were anticipating, again, not just a Messiah, but the Messiah. The Messiah. It's kind of like, I kind of liken it to like a superhero. Like we all know what a lantern is, right? A lantern, you take it camping, but there's only one, the Green Lantern. Okay. Or Hulk Hogan. Okay. Pretty neat guy, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, if you followed wrestling in the eighties. Um, but then there's the Incredible Hulk, the Incredible Hulk who also happens to be green, which I noticed as I was doing this. Okay, so this is, this is the difference. We're not just talking about a Messiah. We're talking about the Messiah. There is a long-anticipated one, anointed one from God that was going to come. And Peter, when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? He gets the answer right. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. So this is good news for Peter, but jumping down to verse 21, Jesus then begins to say, okay, what does that mean? Because that's kind of the question, Messiah, what, what, is, what does that mean in Jesus? And so Jesus begins to explain to his disciples what that means. He says, he says that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer. 
He must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, to this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he said, this shall not happen. This shall never happen to you. Okay, quick time out here in the middle of this. This is just a little like life hack, okay? This is just a little tip for living. I'm thinking that if you're ever in Peter's shoes and you're standing before someone who in one breath you just declare is God, I'm thinking next breath, you're not rebuking that person. You're not correcting Jesus. You're not telling the Son of God how things are going to be. Uh, to which, you know, Jesus um, uh, tells Peter basically that in verse 23. He says uh, to this response, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so bummer for Peter. You know, he gets the question right initially. Who do you say that I am? He gets, you could say the Sunday school answer right. It's like, oh, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. And we could argue that eight out of 10 Americans know the Sunday school answer, that they would say, yes, Jesus is God's son. But it's very clear here that as we see Peter or Jesus' correction of Peter's rebuke, that Peter doesn't yet fully understand in the story who this Messiah is, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And in fairness to Peter, before you know, we all collectively just back that bus up over Peter, in all honesty, we too. I mean, we too, we declare yes. We know the Sunday school answer. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. This is common language for us who have been around church. However, not too unlike Peter, we, we all have room to grow. We all have room to grow, you could say, in the breadth and the depth of this foundation of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Because if, I mean, if this is what we, we uphold, we believe in, we have faith in, I mean, this is, we want to make sure that foundation is, you know, is strong and firm and understood. And then even beyond that, just what we believe, that you know, this is the question I always like to ask of theoretical things or the beliefs of things, is I always like to ask, you know, what difference does this make on a Tuesday? You know, what difference does Jesus being the Messiah, what, why is my life different on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or any other day of the week? Because this is in fact true. Well, I'm glad you asked that question too. Uh, because that's, that's what Jesus is saying. He said, this is how it's different, different than maybe you thought, and here's what it's going to mean. He says, it means I'm going to suffer, it means I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised to life, and that that has implications for us. And so that's what we want to dive into. We want to, we want to build up that firm foundation of which supposedly our whole life is built on. I love the way that uh, one theologian put um, the reality of Jesus as Messiah and his suffering and sacrifice on the cross. Uh, he says it this way, that the cross, that Jesus' suffering and sacrifice, it is the great jewel of the Christian faith. It's the great jewel of the Christian faith. And like every great jewel, it has many precious facets and angles that are each worth examining for their brilliance and beauty. And so that's what we want to do today. We want to look at not just the, the jewel as a whole, but we want to look at the facets and the lights and how it refracts and just kind of a deeper look into this jewel, this crowning reality of the Christian faith of Jesus' sacrifice and suffering on a cross that we see in this story Peter doesn't yet fully understand, and in fairness, we probably don't fully understand and appreciate and so, to help us get a deep and rich understanding of the, all the facets of this jewel, I'm going to transform before you from Pastor Brian 
to Professor Brian. And to help me do that, lovely assistant Morgan Arsenault is going to bring my doctoral robe. And I use the word my very loosely because it's not mine. Um, it's actually uh, the Reverend Dr. Wayne Kent's doctoral robe. I do not have such things, but I play one on the internet today. So here we go. All right. Sorry, the zipper's on like the girl side, so it's kind of throwing me off here. You know what I'm talking about by that? It's like backwards, so it's hard. Okay. Um, and then this fancy, is my cape good? Or, excuse me, it's a hood. A hood that doesn't go on your head. Is it good, Morgan? Okay, yeah. So all these fancy stripes are like, you know, like theology and I'm really smart and stuff like that. Are we good? Am I not good? I'm going to look ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, as if that made the difference, right? Um, <laughs> When, when Morgan was, we were practicing this before uh, Saturday night service, and she said, it's interesting that it seems that the more educated you get, the more ridiculous you get to look. <laughs> and so, here we go. All right, so true to my promise, this is going to be your 20-minute seminary class on a theology of Jesus Messiah. We're going to look at some kind of big words that none of us use on a regular basis, but underneath all those, we, we will see that, you know, people put some study and thought and understanding of the depth and the richness of the facets of the jewel of our Christian faith that I, that I trust will bless you here today from God's Word, okay? So, as we look at why Jesus had to suffer and be killed um, and then risen on the third day, let's build that firm foundation. And if I had to, you could say, lead off with our first class vocabulary word for the day, kind of a lead off batter to get the inning going that really just starts the whole conversation. And what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah and had to die and to bleed and all the suffering? It would be the word atonement. Your first facet of the jewel, your first vocabulary word for us would be atonement. And to atone, it, it literally means to cover. And in the English language, the word means uh, the quality of being at one with. And so when you, you kind of mash those two up, atonement theologically means to cover, to wipe out, to remove sin in order that the quality of being one with God, having a relationship with God, then might be achieved. Okay? I can't even take myself seriously with that. I'm just going to, you all get the point on that. Okay, and so that's what atonement means. It's to cover our sin. And the question we might have is, okay, so why is like blood and death and all that a part of this process of atonement? Why, why is there blood and death associated with the covering of sin? Well, from the beginning, uh, death has always been the consequence of sin. The consequence of, of sin is death. We see this in Genesis 2. At the very beginning of the Bible, God instructed our very first parents, Adam and Eve. They said, or he said to them, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. It's to separate themselves from God. And then from there, blood, really, it's a reminder of that death. That it's, it's, a, you know, it's associated with the sickness of sin. And so sacrifice and death and blood, it has always been tied to the removal of sin. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so we see this all throughout the Old Testament. Animal blood and sacrifice were utilized as a religious act to invite God to really, that's the, that was the act, that God was doing the covering, the atoning for the people's sins. But the Old Testament system of sacrifice was, it was never meant to be sufficient uh, in and of itself. And that really this theme of blood and sacrifice, um, and frankly, any theme throughout the Old Testament, it is all there and designed to point to and find its fulfillment in, you could say, the ultimate atonement. The ultimate atonement that we experience in Jesus Christ. 
1 John 2, 2, after Jesus' death and resurrection, says it this way. He is the ultimate. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. It is Jesus who atones, who covers, who removes our sin. And then through that removal of sin, because sin is what separates us from a perfect God, our imperfection, uh, we are then able to be reunited in a relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. That might be achieved. Okay, so atonement, that really covers a lot. Um, And so Jesus accomplishes atonement for our sin through our next facet of the jewel, the way he does this uh, through the um, theological understanding of the word substitution. Substitution, or it might be called substitutionary atonement or penalty substitute. Always this idea that the penalty of death, that's the, that's the penalty of sin, the penalty of death, that Jesus took our place in that penalty as our substitute. Jesus is our penalty substitute, dying as our substitute for the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And so this role that Jesus would have was prophesied about him hundreds of years before he even shows up on the scene. Uh, Isaiah 53, 5, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Romans 5, 8 says it this way, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for for us as a substitute. And one more, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse, the penalty. The curse, the penalty of the law by becoming a curse, a penalty for us. Again, our substitute. All right? And so from there, we see Jesus atoning and covering our sin as a substitute. And what he does when he dies in our place as our substitute is our next facet of the jewel is Jesus ransoms us. Jesus ransomed us, and uh, a ransom, uh, you know this just from watching, you know, cool movies, that it's, it's a payment paid for the release of someone who's imprisoned or trapped or, or whatever. And so we've all seen that happen, you know, got to pay the ransom. And so we, theologically and in the, in the understanding of our life, we have um, a debt. We have a ransom debt that we owe for our sin. We have a debt of sin. Because God, he created us originally to love him and honor him and obey him perfectly in word and deed. But obviously we are not perfect. We have all failed at this. And so um, every time we do this, every time we fail to do this, we, you could say, accrue our sin debt to God. And so now that we're in debt to God, the problem is we are incapable of paying off that debt. You can't pay off the debt by saying, well, if I avoid enough of those you know, accruements, if I avoid sin uh, enough, well, then I won't owe God. Well, we've all, we all have sinned and fall short of God's perfection, so you can't win there. And you can't, um, as some would believe, uh, maybe somehow outweigh your bad deeds with good deeds. Like, well, if I do enough you know, righteous things, well, then maybe one will balance out the other and it'll pay the, no. Because God is, is perfect and we are imperfect, we cannot afford that debt. Only only a perfect mediator can afford that debt. And thanks be to God, he sent his one and only son into the world to ransom us, to pay the debt of our sins. 1 Timothy 2.5 says it this way, that for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. 
Hebrews 9.15 you know, expounds on that more, saying, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free, we're set free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And so this idea of ransoming out debt, this, this really is the heart behind a prayer that we pray regularly around here, the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is translated in our practice as forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And some of you may be from transition, or, um, traditions excuse me, that use translations such as you know, forgive us our sin or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sin or trespass against us. But uh, you know, the reality of the, the version we have is based in this, that we um, have a sin debt to God and that's forgiven and then Huge implication here for how this plays out on a Tuesday or any other day of the week. We then forgive our debtors based on the debt forgiven us. Um, we forgive those who sin against us. We forgive those who have trespassed against us. Uh, we forgive that sin debt based on the sin debt that was um, forgiven in us. Jesus models this and, and as exemplifies this in, in his own words, Mark 10, 45. He says that even he, the son of man, he didn't come to be served but to serve in his forgiveness, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, and so we see Jesus came to atone for our sins. He did this as a penalty substitute, ransoming us from the debt that we owe for our sins. And from there, when Jesus does this, he kind of the next understanding, he cleanses us from our sin. He cleanses us from all of our sin. And this is the theological, you know, dual facet of expiation. That's our fancy word for today. Expiation, that whereby our sin is expiated, or to use a legal term, expunged from our record. Our sin is completely taken away. We are purified. We are cleansed completely from the defilement and the shame of sin in expiation. And we see this taking place all throughout Scripture and made perfect in Jesus Christ. We see in the Old Testament, Leviticus 16.30, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. Jeremiah 33, 8 says, I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me, and I will forgive their sins of rebellion against me. And then one more, Zechariah 13, 1. It says, on that day, and this is speaking prophetically about the coming of Jesus, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. All right? And so expiation, cleansing from our sin, is the benefit we receive from Jesus' sacrifice and suffering, uh, which is accomplished uh, in another key word that takes place on the cross, and that is the word propitiation. Propitiation. That's, um, try saying that three times fast. Propitiation is, uh, literally, it is the appeasement of an offended party. And so here's how this plays out. You know, when we... When we talk about who God is, when we sing songs about who God is, you know, there's certain attributes that we enjoy looking at and examining and, and kind of rejoicing in, certain attributes about God that we enjoy talking about, you could say, more than others. Like, we love singing and talking about God's love and his grace and his mercy, which are all absolutely present. But what make those attributes so powerful are, and, what, and specifically what makes them so powerful on the cross, is the reality that also God has attributes of anger, fury, and wrath. And you might say, okay, whoa, God, God, has, God has wrath? Um, and you might, you know, you, maybe you're thinking of it in terms, I think in kind of our world's terms, like does God have like anger management issues? Like what's, what's that all about? No, God, the better way of understanding it is as a loving 
and protective father has anger and wrath and, and uh, protecting us from that because he has anger towards sin and wickedness and evil and injustice that ha- happened against his imago Dei, those created in his image. And so it's like a loving father in which he gets angry about things on our behalf that are affecting us in ways uh, that are destroying us. And so we see this play out throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, there are actually 15, more than 15 different words that are synonyms for God's wrath. And we see those words played out in over 600 different instances where, again, God is wanting to protect his people, protect people from sin and wickedness and evil. We see it 25 times in the New Testament. And the way it plays out is what theologians call, you all still with me here this morning? Good, just checking, because I'm not sure. All right, so... The way that theologians explain this is it plays out God's wrath and God's active wrath and his passive wrath. And so really when we think about God's wrath or something we might see, we think most often probably about God's active wrath. You know, this idea that, you know, God's going to zap an unrepentant sinner. And, and what you do see take place throughout scripture. You see this in, you know, the complete destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah where there's no one righteous there. And so God wipes out that evil and that wickedness. Uh, and we see it in the New Testament in the, in the story of the death of Ananias and Sapphira as a, as a place where God's active wrath takes place as a consequence uh, for sin and evil. But the way in which you could say God's wrath is played out more frequently is you could say through God's passive wrath. And this is where in life that God simply hands those over who, want, who choose sin rather than his ways, he just hands them over to it and say, okay, you can do whatever you want. That is God's passive wrath. And, and a great passage of scripture that really unpacks that is Romans uh, chapter one, verses 18 through 32. But just a quick snippet of that. It says that the wrath of God it's being revealed, this passive wrath is being revealed from heaven against all godliness, godlessness, all wickedness of people who are suppressing the truth by their wickedness. And so as a result, God, it says, gave them over in or handed them over to their sinful desires. They choose to self-destruct rather than choose God's way. But here's the reality that before you get to that, we all are guilty of this. We technically all deserve God's wrath. We all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us deserve his love or his grace or his mercy. And so the good news is that fancy word propitiation, that in propitiation and Jesus propitiation, he absorbs, he takes on, he absorbs God's wrath and appeases God's wrath and takes it on himself rather than it consuming us. You know, as I try to think of a picture, an image that represents what's taking place, there's none will fully satisfy, but the best I could come up, I was kind of going back to my movies, and I kind of pictured this idea of like this giant meteor fireball coming for earth and coming to consume us all. And, you know, the countdown's on, there's nothing we can do, you know. Um, and then Jesus uh, is able, as like our hero, to step in and he has this giant fire absorbing shield there. He stands between us and this, you know, this fire that's going to consume us. And he absorbs all the wrath of this, of this, this power. And in doing so, he successfully protects all of us from destruction. But in doing so, it so overwhelms him that it, it, it kills our hero that to the point of death. And while that's kind of an odd illustration, perhaps, it really is a picture, uh, maybe a foggy one at best, but a picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that Jesus propitiated. He took upon himself on the cross the suffering, the sacrifice, the penalty, the wrath of God upon himself that was otherwise headed for us. 
And so we see this um, playing out in scripture passages in the Bible. A lot of times they won't translate a propitiation because again, not word we're using over coffee on a regular basis. Uh, But the ESV, English Standard Version, actually retains that original wording. And so just hear it in the context now that we understand it. 1 John 2, 2, a verse we already looked at, but now in a different translation. It says that Jesus is the propitiation. He is a propitiation for our sins, taking upon himself, and not only ours, but for also the sins of the whole world. And so the whole world has the opportunity to accept Jesus in faith as the propitiation for taking on the sins that we all have. 1 John 4.10, I love the way it says, it says, in this is love. God is love, that's another verse. Yeah, in this is love. Not that we loved God first, but that he loved us, that he sent his one and only son as a propitiation, as the one who would take on the sin for us. So that's powerful. The reality that Jesus is our propitiation, that he is the one absorbing the wrath penalty for our sin on himself. And in his place, in exchange for that, we receive love and grace and mercy. This is good news. When people talk about what's what's so good about the good news or the gospel, this is what's good news, is what Jesus has accomplished for us. And as we dig into the facets of this jewel, one question that I would say when it comes to this is asked of me probably more than any other question. Uh, and that is some, something, to the, and I've thought it too, and that is like just kind of zooming out from all this. Okay, this is wonderfully good news, all that Jesus has done for us, but something to the effect of, you know, but why? Like, I mean, I get that Jesus did all this, but why did it have to go down this way? Like, why did God choose to have, you know, suffering and blood and sacrifice and even more specifically as one and only son? Like, why did it have to go this way? And, you know, I think left to our own devices and our own kind of guilty, sinful, you know, you know, maybe we can play God for a moment understanding. You might just think like, couldn't God just like maybe overlook you know, our sin or just kind of, you know, does it have to be such a big deal with such huge implications? Well, while I guess God could choose to overlook our sin, um, God will not do this. And he, he can't do this and be true to who he is because the reality is for God to just overlook sin as a perfect sinless God would be to render God technically unjust. It would make him unholy. It would be mixing him up with things that are not of him. It would make him somehow unrighteous. And God is not. He is perfect. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. And so we understand that this tension between God's perfection and our separation from him and how they can't come together and he can't just overlook it and what he does do for us, even inside of this, in the word justification. In the, the word justification, and you could say a textbook definition of justice, we would agree, you know, is a, a simply put, you do the crime, you do the time. And God laid out from the beginning that when you separate yourself from him through sin, then we've done this, that we, uh, the time for that is eternal separation. We are eternally apart from God, uh, destined for, for hell, which is, again, the playing out of our choosing of being separated from God based on our sin. And we are part of this. Romans 3.23, it's a verse we all know, or many of us know if you've been around church, that we all fall sin and fall short of the glory of God. And sure, there's a verse to it, but we know this true. Again, we know we're not perfect. We know we have fallen short. We know we have sinned in our lives. But with that, we know also what is true, that God, even in being fair and just, again, in Jesus, because he is also loving, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, the Bible says. He's abundant in love and faithfulness and says he is ready and willing to forgive. This is all in Exodus 34, if you want to capture that. That Romans 4.25 
He, Jesus, he was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. In Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have now been justified through faith, we have, this is the result, this is the result of what Jesus did, and he, we now have peace. We have peace with God. We are reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's more good news, that even in the midst of our sin, on our behalf, we are declared righteous, we are justified, even in spite of our sin. Therefore, we are redeemed. I gotta start moving faster. I'm talking longer with each service. So are you guys ready? You guys want lunch? Eventually. Okay, here we go. Couple more, couple more, I promise. All right, therefore, next facet, the result of all this, this is all coming to a head, we are redeemed. We are redeemed. Redemption, it's a word synonymous with being liberated, freed, rescued, and most frequently, it's in the context of releasing a prisoner or a slave. And so we are redeemed from the consequences of sin eternally, but also we are free from sin's imprisonment and slavery as this idea of sin being able to rule or reign in our lives. We see this uh, spoken of Jesus before his birth, Luke 1, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he comes to his people and redeem them. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostle Paul records in Romans 3, again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the next verse, we are nevertheless justified. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption, the setting free that came by Christ Jesus. And then one more, Titus 2.14, Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem, to set us free from all wickedness, to purify us from, for himself, a people that, is, that are his very own. And then here, here's Tuesday for you. Here's how life lived out in the week. Eager to do what is good. Out of the overflow of what he has done for us, we're eager to do what is good, not feeling like we are under some religious obligation to do so. And so it's in justification and being redeemed that we receive um, the facet of gift righteousness. Gift righteousness. This is uh, what Martin Luther, the great reformer of uh, church history, said uh, is the great exchange. It's like the ultimate trade of all time. Like if you ever traded baseball cards as a kid and you're, like, you're always like, okay, is this a good trade, a bad trade or something? No, this is the worst trade ever from Jesus' perspective, but an unfair one on our behalf. That Jesus traded straight up for our sin, gave us his perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, that God made him, who knew no sin, to actually be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we receive that gift. That's the great exchange. We receive this instantly, but we also receive it progressively. And that in God's eyes, we are seen as righteous because we're given it to it as soon as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. But then also we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is God at work inside of us that we, as we move through life, you know, on a regular Tuesday, if you will, we are, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we have new desires and we have a new power at which to functionally actually follow Jesus in the living of our life. That's the gift of righteousness, both instantly and progressively in the living of our lives. And so we do this by following Jesus Christ as our example for our last theological fancy phrase for the day, our Christos exemplar. That just sounds fancy. Christos exemplar, Christ our example. And it's in this understanding that you could say we, we take off the academic robe, we take off kind of just keeping this stuck in our head as knowledge and really play it out in what theologians call it's called practical theology. It's where you take all the stuff that you've stuffed in your head about the truths about God and his word, and we actually live it out on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday. 
And uh, if you want like a less theological fancy word for it, I was kind of thinking about this earlier. Do you remember the, um, the old WWJD bracelets? If you've been around church for any length of time, it's, it stands for what would Jesus do? That's, that's what Christos exemplar, that Jesus is our example. What did Jesus do? What would Jesus do? That is the example of how we want to live our lives. And what did Jesus do? In his own words, again, Mark 10, 45, he says he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus came for a life of giving and serving and sacrifice. And he is our example in this. And then he from there commissions us to go and do the same. So circling all the way back to Matthew chapter 16, uh, look, at me, uh, look with me at verse 24 and 25 for arguably one of the most profound, memorable, well-known statements of Jesus in all of scripture. Jesus says this. So given all that we understand about this jewel of the Christian faith, Jesus says to his disciples, well, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So is Jesus saying, I'm going to suffer and sacrifice on a cross. That's what it means for me to be the Messiah. In order to follow the Messiah, you too, you take up your cross and you follow me in serving and in sacrifice. Verse 25, for whoever wants to save their life, if you want to preserve your life, you will actually lose it. For whoever loses their life for me will find it. So when you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, that's when you find true life in following him. You know, this is the first verse actually I ever preached on uh, as a freshman in college in my home church in South Carolina. Uh, because I think just given that one opportunity, I'm only going to preach one time, it's my first time. No passage of scripture is more precisely, it's like a tweet. It just sums up all that it means to live out the Christian life, that you're going to live a life of serving and sacrifice, taking up your cross, whatever that means. We could start going into all kinds of examples of what that looks like, but that's between you and the Holy Spirit within you, that how that plays out then. How do you serve and sacrifice and carry your cross in your home, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, uh, among your friends, and also even among your enemies, as Jesus teaches us. In every context, the Holy Spirit is at work in us and through us to figure that out. And so to that end, let me pray for us and... Um, Uh, for the Holy Spirit to do just that in our lives. Father, we are thankful for the richness of your serving and sacrifice that took place on the cross, this jewel of the Christian faith. And now may we, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us and through us, may we now with our Christos exemplar follow your son. What would he do? May we do it in the living of our lives, not in our own strength, but by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you're serving communion for us today, either in this room or uh, the East Auditorium, I'd invite you to go prepare for that now. And, you know, as I was thinking about, what do you say about communion, about remembering Jesus' death and sacrifice in a few words, uh, you know, before that? Well, really, this whole sermon has been a communion meditation. It's been all about the sacrifice and the suffering of Jesus Christ that we regularly remember in our time of communion. And so I kind of likened it to like this idea of the jewel again, that um, just imagine with me that you are, you know, you have in your family, say this, this jewel, this, this ring that was like great, great, great grandma's that she brought over from the boat, you know, when she emigrated here 150 years ago. And, you know, you don't know much about it and you've kind of got it in a drawer somewhere, but you're doing some spring cleaning. You know, you're clearing out, decluttering, you know, trying to, you know, get rid of things. And you come across it and it's like, ah, you know, what am I going to do with this thing? And so it's not that special to you, honestly. Um, you know, it's important. And so you're not, so you say, okay, I'll get it appraised. So you take it to a jeweler you trust and he starts to appraise it. And he's looking at it through his little, like, you know, the little 
jeweler thing, a little optical thing. He's looking at it. His eyes are all squinty. And you notice as he's looking at this, this old ring that you have, that his eyeball just like, it just pops above and beyond that little spectacle thing. And then from there, you see his hands like physically begin to shake as he realizes and tells you this, this jewel and this ring, this is, this is a long lost artifact that has been missing for, you know, eons and all this stuff. And it's just like, wow. And of course your next question is, what's it worth, right? And you know, it's just like thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. Well, you know, what's, what's this thing worth? To which the jeweler responds, no, even more, it's priceless. It's priceless. And, you know, it's in the, for us who have been around this for a while, um, it's easy for the story of the cross, the jewel of the Christian faith, to become kind of like that ring in a drawer. It's like, it's something we've always had. It's always been there. But just like kind of the spring cleaner, you know, she realizes that, or he realizes that he, or she has not been living in accordance with the value that's always been there. And it's when we take a look at this firm foundation that we supposedly built our lives on that we are reminded and able to relive, okay, the value. We can now, going out of here in the digging of God's word of what happened on the cross, we can live our lives more in accordance with the value of something that we've always had. And so that's why I appreciate, again, the reality that we celebrate that weekly here in communion because it's a consistent and constant reminder, regardless of the topic of the sermon, it reminds us and grounds us of the jewel of the Christian faith that in Christ's sacrifice and suffering through the bread, he said in his own words, this bread is my body broken for you, this cup is my blood poured out for you. Eat and drink in remembrance of me. And so may we do that today, um, living up to and worshiping the full value of the cross. Let's pray for that. Father, we give you thanks for your, <laughs> who gave his one and only son, uh, who then gave his life, uh, that we might be given the gift of a new life. May we live in accordance with the value of that. That is, it says in another parable that it's the pearl that all other pearls are rendered um, worthless in comparison to. Father, may we remember and relive uh, and give thanks for that great gift in the worship of you. Uh, in this time, in Jesus' name, amen.